Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We are in a three-week Life Together series where we'll learn how we give ourselves fully to the way of Jesus and His mission. Thanks for joining us. Don't let me kill the chatter. That was great. I like that. Hey, good morning, church. My name's Luke. I get to lead our high school ministry. And if you were with us last week when we gathered, Pastor Brian was preaching on the theme of life together in community. As we began a three-week vision casting series, where we're just trying to name what we believe is important for us to run after as we're pursuing life together. So I would highly encourage you to check out that message if you happen to miss it last week so that we can all be on the same page as we move forward together into the next season of ministry. This morning, I'm going to be preaching on the theme of life together in formation. Life together in formation. Now, we don't normally do this, but in a moment, not right now, but in a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand with me for the reading of scripture. Some of you may have come from a church tradition where this is normal, this is every week, and I love it. So we're going to try it this week. Uh, I'm going to read to you the the opening text, our kind of diving board into um, the message this morning. And after I read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you're liturgical, you may already know this, but then you'll reply back to me, thanks be to God. Got it? Okay, so we're gonna be in Matthew chapter 14, verses 25 through 31. And just to set up, the text that I'm about to read is about Simon Peter, all right? The text will be uh, on screen for you, or you can find it in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 14, verse 25. And if you know anything about Peter, you'll know he was a fisherman. Simon Peter was one of the three guys that Jesus spent a lot of extra time with. He seemed to have special access and closeness with Jesus, his rabbi and Lord. And for better or worse, Peter was one of the more vocal members of Jesus' little community. And there were many, many times in Peter's life and journey with Jesus where Jesus surprised him. He surprised him. And we're going to read about one of those in Matthew chapter 14. So would you go ahead and stand to your feet with me for the reading of scripture this morning? Hear the word of the Lord in Matthew chapter 14, verse 25. It says, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. And cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, Tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, Save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? This is the word of the Lord. Take a seat. When Peter first became a follower of Jesus, I imagine there was tremendous excitement. Some of you will remember what it was like when you first became a Christian. When you're first baptized or you first declared, I I believe, I want to walk this path. There's a sense of purpose, of relief, of expectancy, of joy and passion. And I imagine Peter must have felt all of those things at the first encounter where he left his nets in response to Jesus' words, follow me. The first thing he says to Peter in the gospels, follow me. 
And Peter would have been glad to receive that call, expecting great things, hard things, yes, but, but great things from this journey. I imagine he had all sorts of desires and expectations he carried with him when he said yes to that call for the very first time. But I also have to imagine that in a moment like the one we just read, Peter may have found himself asking this question. I've got it for you in your notes. What have I gotten myself into? What have I gotten myself into? Have you ever asked yourself this question? What have I gotten myself into? Um, Show of hands in the room here. Has anybody been skydiving? There we go. Okay, some of you are like military and you're gonna laugh at the story I'm about to tell because you're serious and I'm not. But I went skydiving uh, when I was 18 years old. Uh, I don't know what came over me. I had this sense of adventure, I think. I was like, let's go do this thing. And so um, a, f- a few months after my 18th birthday, I was you know, scheduled to go. My parents set it up and I was gonna go with my, my brother and my cousin. We were excited and they had to drop out last minute. Couldn't make it. So I was like, okay. So, um, so I asked this girl that I liked at the time named Mara. So you were laughing because she's sitting in the back there and she's my wife now, it worked out. But she, she turned me down. She turned me down. Can you believe that? Um, so I ended up going with a couple of buddies of mine from school, Connor and Grant. And uh, I don't know what, for those of you who have done this, I don't know what your experience is like. Mine felt a little sketchy at first. It's not the word you want to use to talk about skydiving, right? Um, there's an image I think you can see on the screen here of me and a couple of guys here. So um, that's us trying to look cool and brave before we don't have an aftermath picture. We just didn't do that. We just got in the car and left. But, but that's what it looked like at the start. And uh, you can tell uh, it's just like a grass, dirt field. There's not a you know, proper runway per se. Uh, what we're wearing in that photo is what we wore when we skydived. We didn't get a, like a flight suit. I thought that you got a flight suit. You don't get one of those all the time. So I was wearing my sweatpants and uh, Connor's in, in jeans. So it was great. And uh, we, we get in these little planes and it, they're so small. It's it's unbelievable. And you couldn't even fit all three of us in there. So we have to take two separate planes up. Connor drew the short straw. So he was in the plane by himself. <laughs> it was my birthday. So I was with Grant. And uh, we go up in these planes, right? And uh, you, you, you know, you're cruising up and up and up in these tiny little things with your instructor on the back. Uh, and you're sitting in the floor on these airplanes, just to clear out. There's no seats. You're sitting on the floor. And you've got this, you know, vest on with these carabiner hooks and everything. And eventually the guy flying the plane's like, all right, we're at 11,000 feet, boys. It's time to jump. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm looking out the window. My mom waving on the ground is getting smaller and smaller. We're going away. And uh, I, I, I will never forget, I had this moment, this moment where, you know, the, the instructor's clipped into me with the carabiners because he's the guy with the parachute, right? A very important step. And he's like, goggles on. We put, the, we put the goggles on. I'm wearing sweatpants, but I did have goggles, so we got those on. And then the moment I won't forget is they slide the door open. And there's a couple of things that stood out to me at that moment. One, it was cold. Uh, it was Florida in March, just like spring break weather. But up, you know, 11,000 feet, it was, it was chilly up there. Altitude, right? Wind. The other thing I remember is the noise. It was so loud, the engine, the rush of the wind. And so you had to yell to communicate anything. And my legs are, I'm sitting there, my legs are dangling out the, the door of this plane and I'm looking down <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, what have I gotten myself into? And then there's that moment, right? There's that moment where the instructor behind you, he taps you, you know, on the back and he says, hey, it's time to jump. Let's roll out. And you do this kind of somersault thing. It's crazy. 
And no matter how much you, you try to mentally prepare yourself for that, no matter how much you, you conceptualize and visualize, you know the facts and the figures, there is nothing that can quite prepare you for that moment when you get that tap on the back and it's like, it's go time. We're doing this thing. There's no turning back, right? Everything that you think has prepared you for that moment is, is tested in that moment. You can no longer talk a big game or verbally commit or theoretically say, I'm doing this thing. At that moment in time, the only thing left for you to do is to take the leap. That's it. You have to take the leap. You realize that expectation and reality have been on this inevitable collision course and all the pretense fades away and it's just pure decision. Will you take the leap? That's what's left for you. Now, of course, we made it safely to the ground that day without incident. And I think through that experience, I've come away with a better understanding of what formation is all about. Spiritual formation is, is taking the leap. Formation is saying yes to Jesus' invitation, not theoretically, not cognitively, but through an enacted, demonstrated, embodied trust. When the door swings wide and Jesus says, let's go, go here with me, do this, be this way, repent, confess this, start this practice, belong to this community, live this way in mission. We're just called to say yes and to take the leap with him. That's what Christian formation is all about. And formation into Christ likeness, when you understand it this way, we understand that it is not something that happens automatically just because you said yes when you were safely planted on the ground. There is an all new sort of yes that must come later on down the road. It's rather easy to follow Jesus and to say yes to him when we're safely planted on the ground or we think we know what to expect or what following Jesus is gonna mean for our lives, what it's going to cost us, what he's going to demand from us. It's easy in those moments but something else is required. Yes, it's the work of the spirit to be spiritually formed. It's something God does in us. We can't do it to ourselves, but we have to continually put ourselves in the pathway of transformation. Again and again and again, we have to say yes daily to what Jesus wants to do in our own lives. It takes intentional practice over time. It takes perseverance. It takes humility. It takes discipline. It takes accountability takes time, patience, courage, all these things. There's a, a great definition of spiritual formation by a guy named Robert Mulholland. And uh, he wrote a book called Invitation to a Journey, which is uh, available at the Resource Center if you'd like to get a head start in learning some more about what spiritual formation is all about. That's a great resource. And he defines spiritual formation this way. He says, it's the process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. And so I wonder this morning, when we consider that process, that journey, and all that it entails for our lives, what keeps us from taking the leap? What prevents us from saying yes to Jesus in each of the moments that he's called us to say yes to him? The reality is, it's easy in the joy and the passion of the moment when we're raising our hands in worship or you're at Passion Conference or you're at, you know, huge camps with my kids, right? Or like you're, you're having moments of encounter and it feels good. But moments of encounter, they happen, 
but it's the, the disciplines, the daily grind of saying yes to Jesus that's the difficult part of life. It's easier to say yes to Jesus with lips and minds when all it means for us is a short dip in a warm tub, right? But what should follow from this? There's a Christian philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, uh, wrote in the early 1800s, and he says this. He's talking about the, the teachings of the church here. He says, the doctrines of the established order, its organization are very good. Ah, but the lives, our lives, believe me, they are mediocre. Our lives are only slightly touched by the doctrine. He wrote that almost 200 years ago, but I think he may as well be describing the American church today. By and large, the American church today has opted out of a deep discipleship to Jesus. We just have. It's true. According to Barna Research Group, 39% of professing Christians are not engaged in any form of discipleship. 39%. Of the nine in 10 Christians who say spiritual growth is important, that's good, like nine in 10 people, they think it's important. Of those though, 29%, believe that their spiritual life is entirely private without effect on their family, friends, or community. Brian preached last week, right? Our faith is is personal, but never private. But almost a third, you know, over a quarter of us who think that spiritual formation is important, think that it's just for for me, my own personal experience and devotion or, or spirituality or something, but that it doesn't carry out and influence and shape the way that I live and move in the world and my relationships. It doesn't actually change things and change people. That goes against Mulholland's definition, right? For the sake of others. Our biblical literacy and our theological foundations are in a state of disrepair as well. There's a a survey done every two years called the State of Theology Survey. It's a national survey. Last conducted in 2020. They found that 51% of American evangelicals who attend church at least twice a month, these are church-going people, agreed with the following statement. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. If you don't know, that's a heresy. And I'm not being funny about it. Like it's actually in the literal sense of of the definition of heresy. It's a heresy. It's not something that church or scriptures have ever taught. Jesus was not a being created by God. Jesus is God. Jesus is creator, right? Co-eternal with God, the father and God, the spirit. In a similar vein, 34% of that same group of church-going evangelicals believe the Holy Spirit is a force and not a personal being. Like from Star Wars, right? Like, you know, the Spirit's a force, not, not a person of the Trinity, of our triune God. We don't know our own faith. How can we live it? How can we live it? And some of us will say, okay, well, those statistics are a little rough, you know, but we got some other good stuff going on for us. It's not that big of a deal. I would disagree. Dallas Willard, he wrote this. He said, the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. What do you believe is the greatest issue facing the world today? Is it your own spiritual formation? Is it whether or not we will become all that Jesus has called us to be, all that he is to receive every word from him, whether of encouragement or admonition or warning or correction? 
Will we step into and say yes and take the leap and the invitation that he gives to us day by day? Do we believe that's not only matter for our own sake and soul, but the, the sake of the world and the good of other people is wrapped up in our own spiritual formation? The greatest issue faced in the world today. And it would be easy to, to pick out the things we're doing well, right? And to say, well, you know, for the most part, Christians, they, they give more money to charity and they adopt, you know, more children. Uh, they volunteer in the community more than other demographics. So we're doing okay. It would be easy to say that. I had a, uh, an, an experience at a church service growing up that made an indelible impression upon me. I was, I was sitting in the pews at my, my little Southern Baptist church growing up, and um, my mom worked in ministry. We had a family friend who was a, a preacher, and he was there that Sunday uh, filling the pulpit uh, for our, our normal senior pastor. And he was preaching on the topic of prayer. He was mainly calling the church that day to a, a life and to a discipline of prayer. And his basis for that was, was Jesus teaching. And Jesus clears the temple, right? And he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And so his question, his challenge that day, he asked the room, is your church known for its prayer life? Is your church known as a house of prayer? It was a rhetorical question. But there's a guy in the back of the room who stands up. And he shouts back, our church does walk through Bethlehem. If you don't know, that's a uh, evangelistic Christmas production that our church used to do. And there is, I mean, you could just hear a pin drop, right? And so the preacher shouts back. He says, that's not good enough. Jesus says, this house will be called a house of prayer. And I learned that day about the danger of moving the goalposts. If you're following in your notes, we don't use our successes to evade confrontation with our failures. It's easy for us to look at the things we think are going well in our spiritual lives and bypass the real work that God actually wants to do in our deficits. He wants to expose our blind spots to push us out of the comfort zone to move us into deep waters with him. I wonder, is it possible that some of us have got a great prayer life, but you haven't picked up a book in a long time? Is it possible that you're very evangelistic and you're living on mission, but you have no contemplative rhythms, you don't keep the Sabbath, you don't rest well, you don't pray and practice the presence of God. He's not a source of power and joy and delight for you. Is it possible that you're theologically astute and biblically fluent and you know the Bible backwards and forwards and you can drop all the big, nice sounding theological words, but you're arrogant and cynical and you push people away from the gospel by the way that you hold your beliefs? Is it possible that you're deeply intelligent and kind to most people, but in certain relationships, in certain situations, your ego, your anxiety, your insecurity comes out and you become emotionally reactive, quick to anger, quick to speak, not slow. Each of us have these contradictions within our own spirit. And the Lord is asking us to discern what he wants to do and to say yes in each of those moments, not to stand by in complacency and stagnation and say, well, Lord, I followed you last week. (laughs) 
Lord, I'm good in this area. I mean, just check out my Bible reading plan. I'm crushing it, right? Like he wants us fully and holistically to give ourselves to him in the pursuit of being formed into his image. Some of us have gladly you know, received the call of Jesus on our lives like Peter did at first when we're told, hey, leave our nets, follow me. And we're like, yes, Lord. But everything that ought to follow from that yes is maybe lacking in our lives. And now a little ways down the road, in our journey with Jesus, maybe some of you for weeks, maybe some of you for years, you have felt in the background of your soul, Jesus doing this, it's time. Let's jump. Let's go. I got more for you. Here's the next thing. Go here with me. And you're hesitating. And you're wanting to stand still to remain in the comfort zone. Peter didn't have one great moment with Jesus and then remain the same. His lifetime, everything we know about his spiritual journey with Jesus is that again and again and again, Jesus is working on him in the process of formation, unmaking, refashioning, shaping him into the person that Jesus was calling him to be. He is continually bringing Peter into confrontation with himself so that the, the patterns of thought and action and the way he's, he is being in the world is being challenged and changed and stripped away in ways that are often surprising, disorienting, and even painful. That's what Jesus is doing in Peter's life again and again and again. Just consider with me a few scenes in Peter's journey. In Matthew chapter 18, Peter comes to Jesus with a theological question. I love this because, you know, a lot of the stuff is, is more practical or whatever. And, and this is a moment where Peter's just like, no, I got a, I got a theology question, Jesus. And he says to Jesus, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? And I love Peter. He ventures a suggestion. He's brave. He says, Jesus, I got a theory. How about this? Seven times. As for, if somebody wronged you seven times, you'd be like, shake the dust off my feet, man. I'm out of here. He says seven times, that's pretty good, seven times. But then Jesus moves Peter beyond his own expectations. He replies to him, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven. Write this in your notes. There will be surprises. You cannot predict or control what God has in store for you. He just says, say yes. Just be open, just receive, just trust me, just follow me. It's more, it's bigger than you can imagine right now. In John 13, Jesus determines that he's going to wash the feet of his disciples before the final Passover meal he's going to eat with them in the upper room. And Peter is indignant because washing feet, taking the towel, that's, that's an act of a slave. And Peter, he wants to serve Jesus. He doesn't want to be served by Jesus. He's indignant at the thought that he would be put in a position of privilege while his Lord and his rabbi takes the posture of a slave and a servant. John tells us that Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand your parent. You've said those words. Like, just go with me. Just go with me. This is, is going to work. I need to do this. Trust me in this. Okay. And then Peter says, this is John 13, eight. What a verse. Peter said, no. He said, no. <laughs> How could Peter say no to Jesus invitation? 
You see the irony, right? This is our daily experience. Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. But Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Here's the change. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Surprises, right? Just a little while after that, Peter's in the garden with Jesus. Jesus has just been betrayed by Judas Iscariot. The guards have come. They're ready to take him away. And it's a moment of decision, a moment of action. And Peter pulls out his sword and he strikes one of the servants of the guards, a guy named Malchus, cuts off his ear. And we can look back with hindsight and say, Peter, 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 what are you doing, man? I mean, don't you know that Jesus had to be crucified? Don't, don't you know Jesus was nonviolent and he didn't want, don't you know? But he didn't know. And you have to give the guy a little credit here. I mean, this for Peter must have felt like the pinnacle of spiritual achievement. Like he has arrived. Ain't nobody else going to draw swords for Jesus. He's communicating to his Lord. I am with you, man. I'm in your corner. I got your back. Let's do this thing. He finally feels like this is a show of, of actual fidelity that Jesus will honor I imagine there was some enthusiasm with that. But, <laughs> but Jesus says, put away your sword. All who draw the sword will die by the sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Surprises, surprises. And finally, after Jesus' death and resurrection, he's with his followers by the Sea of Galilee, he makes breakfast for him after a miraculous catch of fish by the sea. And he has this moment with Peter where he forgives him and recommissions him three times, each accounting for the denial and betrayal where Peter said that he didn't really know Jesus. He reestablishes and reinstates him. And then after that moment, he says to him, very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And they said to him, follow me. Follow me. What a change between the first follow me and the final, follow me. But the call is still the same. There will be surprises. This verse I love is a great paradigm for what spiritual formation entails. Formation is all about growing up. And growing up, according to Jesus, entails uh, being willing to be led by him into places we'd rather not go in order to find the end of ourselves. The old man must die. The old man must die. This is what Jesus is inviting us into when he says, follow me. If you're following your notes, let me return to this question. What keeps you from taking the leap? Can I invite you just to be honest with yourselves for a moment, to have a reckoning with the reality of our inner lives? I would venture to say that for some of us, 
You've gotten all you've wanted from Jesus. You've got a community to belong to and eternal debt forgiveness and you know, some great leaders and other people that are going to help your kids grow up and um, you know, have, have some good morals and character and do well in school. And beyond that, your life is pretty contented. And you're not seeking much more from Jesus. Jesus has ceased to be beautiful, Lord, we worship and obey, and he's become a functional concept. And we've gone just about as far on the journey with Jesus as we are willing to go. And now we're in a holding pattern. We come to church and we go through the motions and we sing the songs. But by and large, we're done. We're comfortable with where we're at. If you're within the sound of my voice this morning and and you sense that complacency or that stagnation in your spiritual life, I just want to mediate a word to you. Would you courageously resolve in your spirit that you will not be done with Jesus until Jesus is done with you? There is more. There is more. There is more. And there will be surprises. Don't be done with Jesus. As a church, we don't know and we can't control what God wants to do in every person's life. You know, we believe, right, the spirit, the wind of God blows where he wishes. We don't know from whence he comes or where he is going. So we want to foster a culture of discernment that you would be able to listen and respond to the spirit and know what it means to take next steps in your own spiritual journey as you say yes to Jesus, as you take the leap. So if you're here this morning and you're considering and you're weighing, okay, what does this look like? How do I move into this? How do I take a next step? How do I say yes in a new and fresh way? Uh, we, we've created some spaces in different ways for you to be able to do that as a church. We would entrust you to discern what looks right for you. And if there's something that's not on the list I'm going to show you, great. Do, do whatever the Lord is calling you to do. But we want to create some spaces and some environments for you to be able to do that. Uh, we have some Bible studies that are happening this fall. Uh, you can join a Bible study. That's a, that's a great way to, to study and internalize and, and be immersed in the scriptures. There's all sorts of what we call equipping classes and men's and women's events. We're hosting a faith and a culture forum again this fall. I'm really excited for that. We've got a guy named Scott Cormode. He's a leadership professor from California. He's an expert in conflict management. Going to come out and share with us and let us ask some questions on the topic of how we deal with uh, conflict and how we love people in a divisive age. There's some good stuff going on. And, and lastly, there's one I'm especially excited about near and dear to my heart. We're launching something called Institute this fall. And uh, the story behind that is a long and, and winding one, but we really believe that it's something beautiful and good that God is doing in the life of our church right now. Uh, to launch our Institute, we're starting with what we call core classes. This is going to be in theology, scripture, formation, and history. And there'll be some other types of learning environments that are going to be built and part of our Institute But essentially, we just want to see people deeply formed in the way of Jesus for the sake of others. That's what we're about. And so we think the Institute is going to be a crucial way that we can help move our people deeper into that. So if you'd like to take an Institute class, there's two, theology and formation. They're going to be offered this fall. We'd love for you guys to step into those. They're going to be higher commitment. It's going to be challenging, but we think it's going to be good. We're trying to raise the bar so that we can move deeper in our discipleship to Jesus. So we just invite you to consider 
any of those ways, uh, opportunities for you to step deeper into the life of formation that Jesus is calling you to. I asked the team to come and lead us in a, a song to give us space to reflect on that, to give us space to reflect on the ways in which we want to say yes to Jesus. This song is called I'll Say Yes. It's by D. Wilson. And I heard this song a few years ago in uh, Atlanta. Uh, there's an organization called 10,000 Fathers that many of our, our worship and creative arts uh, team is connected to. And I remember hearing this song and it just pulling something out of me. I was driving out west on a road trip with my wife, Mara, and we just had this song on repeat and we felt like as we're worshiping, the Lord is pulling something out of us. And I don't know if you'll have that experience this morning, but I just hope and I pray that you'll consider deeply the words of the song and just reflect in your own spirit. What does it look like for me in the next season to say yes to Jesus? Take a moment to receive these words as our team leads us. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.